0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv and Tokyo. I'm Mia Kosiavelu, your host. Today I'm going to be interviewing two very special guests, Beth Cantor and Alison Fine. Welcome, Beth and Alison. We'd love to hear a little bit about you. Shall we start with you, Beth? Could you introduce yourself to our humanitarian AI meetup community?
1: Sure. Thanks, Mia, for inviting us on today. So, I'm an author, facilitator, and trainer, and I work and I've written about digital transformation and workplace well being in the nonprofit sector. And I have over 30 years of experience designing capacity-building programs and training for nonprofits and foundations at the intersection of emerging tech and social
0: change. We're so excited to have you as our guest today. And, and of course, Alison, yes. could you tell us a little bit about yourself as well?
2: I have spent my entire career in the social and nonprofit sector. I had a first career as a program evaluator, so I know a lot about uh, measurement and data. And a second career at the intersection of tech and social good. The Smart Nonprofit, which is my second book with Beth, comes out next month. And that is my fourth book. And I focus on leadership, you know, leading in an age with digital tech and how organizations can create communities inside and outside of their walls.
0: You are both authors and you've collaborated together it's great we've got you both here today. Can you tell us a bit about the books you've worked on together and what they've been about? Best, do you want to start that?
1: Um, sure. So we have known each other and worked together for, I, I don't even want to say how long, um, <laughs> getting into our second decade now, uh, uh, forever. And so well that we can finish each other's sentences by now. And our first book was The Network Nonprofit, and that was back in 2009 at the dawn of the social media age. And again, we focused on how this sort of uh, shift to online social networks was really going to impact nonprofit work And not from a technical point of view and not like, you know, how to compose a really great tweet but really, you know, the leadership challenges of adopting it and reaping all the benefits and overcoming the challenges. And at that point, there was also a great deal of skepticism about uh, online networks, if you remember, um, back then. And and we thought uh, there was this enormous opportunity for for donor engagement, stakeholder engagement, uh, but it required this different way of working, kind of letting go of or sharing control, which was a a big uh, risk aversion piece for a lot of leadership so we work with them so now over a decade later we're beginning to see the contours of the impact of artificial intelligence or what we're calling smart tech and uh, the reason we use smart tech is when we use the word ai or machine learning leaders were kind of backing off a bit and we really see this as a more a leadership challenge so in short, the, the smart nonprofit is really about there's this tremendous benefit that can come from adopting these tools, as you well know, uh, um, Mia. And, and one of that is efficiency. Uh, it saves a lot of time because this technology can take over a lot of the boring, time-consuming tasks and that can free up time. And we hope that it won't be to do more of the same, right? Mm-hmm. Just to like work people more, work them faster, work them harder, but really to embrace the dividend of time. Uh, to reinvest in donor relationships or maybe to think about more innovative, innovative w- ways of working. And I'll pass it over to um, Allison to sort of pick it up from there.
0: Brilliant. Thanks so much. Go ahead, Allison. Thanks.
2: Well, I think over, you know, many years working together, we have a track record, a uh, successful track record of being early on in looking at these trends in technology, not just how does the technology work, but what does it mean specifically for NGOs and organizations in the social sector? What is it about these organizations that make them both hesitant to use new technology, right? Our our organizations tend to be risk averse, but also ripe for the benefits of the technology. So because the two of us have worked for so many years with literally thousands of organizations around the world, I think we have a good handle on how we can explain the technology to people who tend to sit back when they hear the word tech, how we can make it palatable to them, and how we can really crystallize the real benefits of leaning in. And in particular, we need the C-suite to lean in for AI. And many times we work in
1: partnership with the IT or the technical department. Um, it's always good to have that outside voice kind of reinforcing what they're talking about and and sort of also coaching and, and supporting leadership.
0: Well, it's such a new landscape and your pioneers trying to sort of serve it up as smart tech and the combination of efficiency that you mentioned is a big benefit, Beth, and... Um, Alison, you know, jumping in and, and, and collaborating. My experience is a lot of passion and imagination that comes from the non-profit community. And I think they can probably really do amazing things with very little. And I, I can imagine that this digital landscape's just naturally been a, a fantastic benefit. What do you think, um, you know, the digital expectations should we pl- be planning around
2: Part of the difficulty of being a leader in the nonprofit space, a leader in the nonprofit of a nonprofit organization is the expectation, Mia, that you should do an awful lot with very little. And given the pandemic and given the tendency of organizations to try to to try to do what I would think is actually trying to do too much with too little, uh, the sense of scarcity is pervasive in the sector. Now, This technology that we're talking about, this, you know, new chapter in digital tech is very, very different from the last chapter in social media. Social media created more work, created more noise, you know, kind of a cacophony out there in the world, as well as created community and, and did a whole lot of wonderful things. This technology, what we're calling smart tech, is technology that automates systems. So it does, it makes decisions for people instead of people. That's a first in human history. And in what feels like a blink of an eye, although it's taken decades to get here, everyday people in organizations now have access to commercial technology being built into systems for fundraising or HR or comms or finance, where AI is making decisions that only people could make just up until this time, that's an awesome shift in power, an awesome shift in decision-making. And that's the crux of the issue that we're focused on in the smart nonprofit.
0: Lovely. And that leads on to the next question. Maybe Beth, if, if you don't mind, um, do you have any new collaborations in the pipeline? And where do you see a need for more resources for nonprofits?
1: a great question you know i'm thinking about the pandemic and kind of our forced uh, digital transformation with the organizations that i've been working with there were lots of digital transformation projects but they were on the back burner and we'll get to that um and then all of a sudden like they became front and center because we had to <laughs> um we had to accelerate that and i you know some of my colleagues and i i kind of agree with this that we that we w- leapt through 10 years worth of digital transformation in you know 2 years because we had to, it was a matter of life or death. And so now, but it wasn't always that strategic. And although there were some great examples of using automation um, during the pandemic. So I think we have this really great opportunity now to um, in the second stage, as we move out of COVID pandemic into being endemic and living with it, that we continued the path um, of innovative uses of digital technology. But in order uh, to do that, I, I feel really strong that organizations really shouldn't just jump into the tech. We really need to like think about it more strategically and more human-centered. And in the book, um, we, we talk about like ready, set, smart tech. <laughs> and, and the readiness is so important. We always just skip over that. And that's really thinking about what problem are we solving? And have we involved the end users in that? Do we have a really good use case um, for this or are we just sort of me tooing, oh, oh, we're going to try this cool new thing and and, and the second thing is have we really done our due diligence about the tools or the particular technology vendor or maybe the technology partner that or big tech, tech company that we may be working with and then finally are we kind of iterating and piloting and experimenting so some of the collaboration moving forward that Allison and I are doing are really wor- advising and working with organizations to really embrace this readiness process and then also of course um, leadership coaching around that because it's not a technical challenge it's really a leadership challenge.
0: So much I'd love to ask you Um, maybe this might be a question for both of you so in this digital transformation and innovation how do you see the digital landscape in your experience and as advisors changing and how should these organizations and Nonprofits view the future in the short and long term?
2: So certainly the technology itself is being commercialized very, very quickly and it's becoming uh, much more accessible, much more affordable for even very small organizations. So I'll give you just a couple of examples of how right now it's beginning to be used uh, by organizations. We would say the most likely use of ai uh within organizations right now are online chatbots right so these are you know online conversational technology that can answer the same questions over and over again and save staff an enormous amount of time you know answering is my is my donation tax deductible yes you know and and or w- what time are your doors open so all of those questions that interrupt staff constantly during the day Can be answered by a chatbot. We see systems like hiring systems or systems that are screening people for services starting to use AI to search for certain uh, kinds of applications, which Mia leads to what we call embedded bias, which we should talk about in a, a few minutes. And then we're seeing lots and lots of back office applications for AI that can, you know, the AI can swim through. Communications and help identify patterns for how people are behaving. It can reconcile budgets and financial statements in real time, all the time. It can help organize meetings so active as, you know, a virtual assistants for organizations that can't afford that. So it's, it's, you know, what we call an equal opportunity disruptor. It's being represented in every facet of an organization. But as Beth mentioned, It takes real thoughtful preparation to use well.
0: Beth, did you want to add your um, views?
1: So we've been writing and talking about uh, this technology. Oh gosh, we're going on our fifth year now? Yeah. (laughs) And in the beginning, we used to like uh, quip and have all these like funny robots taking over the world kind of memes in our presentation. I mean, of course, you know, you know, the space odyssey, HAL, and, and whatnot, in fact, I went down a number of rabbit holes searching for great robots take over the world clips. But, you know, we hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> and in part why we, we, there's a tagline in our book it's sort of staying human centered in an automated world. So that we don't buy into that narrative that the evil robots are going to take over the world. Um, and we hope that with organizations kind of embracing readiness, that we begin to understand the sort of, um, the concept of co-botting. And that's letting the machines do what they do best and letting the humans do what they do best. And so the robots, you know, can do all those boring, painful, monotonous, you know, time-consuming tasks. And they take like, you know, a few minutes to do it. And where humans are great at building relationships and, and bringing the human touch or the human, uh, the human ethos to the situation. And I'll give you an example. There's a lot of technology, and I know we'll talk about this in a bit in the fundraising area um, that's incorporating uh, artificial intelligence. And one uh, helps major gifts officers do their desk research on like out of this database of thousands and thousands of potential donors, which ones should I cultivate? Which ones are most likely to be giving us a gift. And that desk research can take up to 20 hours. That's what we've been told by major gifts officers. But these technologies can do that type of research in like an hour or even less. And so that frees up time for the major gift officer to focus on the donor, donor relationship, the donor cultivation, giving the donor a phone call and checking in with them. So that's an example of like what we hope comes in the future of this, you know, sort of co bodying relationship, and not the evil robots taking over the world.
0: So each works to their strengths, and I, I like that relationship. I think you know you touched on social media, and and maybe you know that whole tech stepping in for hopefully enhancing human relationships. But I, I don't want to take us off track. What should we cover next? Um, Alison, you mentioned earlier um, something about embedded bias. I was wondering, in what ways, in your view, does smart tech exacerbate this bias?
2: This is a super important question for a number of reasons. One being that smart tech actually runs in the background in systems. It's hard to see from the outside. So there are two ways in particular that smart tech can have uh, racial and gender bias actually built into it. We call this embedded bias. One is when the programmers uh, are making assumptions. Maybe they're using what are called proxies to estimate what assumptions the text should make. So a proxy might be for a housing uh, application. A certain zip code is, quote, good. Well, that zip code may have a racial um, component to it. And the second way is it takes what we call Library of Congress sized data sets to train AI systems, right? If you're, if you're trying to train a computer system to find patterns, you need lots and lots of data for them to practice on those historic data sets for social change efforts that a programmer might grab. Um, almost always have a lot of bias built into them, right? So again, back to our housing effort, a programmer is building in, you know, uh, assumptions about, um, outcomes and they're using historic data on say, you know, who's been granted mortgages that is in its very essence racially biased and building that into the code and an organization grabs it off the shelf starts to use it and may not even know that those biases are built in, that they're now paying forward into their own work, unintentionally, of course. But our effort is to both educate them about where and how bias can get built into these systems and what questions they need to be asking the programmers and developers and commercial vendors about assumptions they're making and data sets that they're using to try to uncover that and to have the uh, both the courage and the fortitude, the resilience to push back when the first response they're going to get from commercial vendors is, ah, that's proprietary. We can't open up the hood for you to see our code. We don't need to see the code. We need to know what the assumptions are. So Mia, we need people to understand how easy it is for buyers to be built into these systems how it is their part of their responsibility. And this is why we call it smart nonprofits because a smart nonprofit has to be human centered, knowledgeable and prepared. How it is part of being a smart nonprofit to ask the right questions uh, of developers and to be responsible for the tools that you put into practice.
1: And um, building on what Allison just said, it's, it's, we're encouraging that nonprofits take a do no harm pledge, uh, like we do in medicine. For the end user or even their organizations, like their, their reputational risks, if you will. And by following, you know, by understanding what, where the potential bias is that Allison really laid out well and then testing for that and mitigating it, you know, that's a do no harm pledge. And, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, I mean, we've all heard the story of the, the Microsoft bot on Twitter named Tay. It was one of those self-learning artificial intelligence codes where it learns from interacting with users. And its intent was to learn how to converse with young people. But, of course, the trolls got a hold of it and started swearing at it. And it picked up that and became a racist, misogynist bot, And they had to take it down uh, less than 24 hours later. So one example of that, uh, one nonprofit took to sort of do no harm This is an animal rights organization, Best Friends. They wanted to use one of these bots, but, uh, and they were testing it for Black Cat Adoption Week as part of a campaign because Black Cats are really hard to adopt because they're associated with bad luck and, you know, all of that stuff. And if you think about it, just think about (laughs) all the potential ways that the words Black and Cat um, used, you know, freely out on the internet with a bot where it could go wrong. And when they were testing it, they were aware of this, and they were trying to iterate and you know, you know, solve for that. And they realized that it was just so time-consuming that it just wasn't going to be possible, and they scrapped the project. So they had the fortitude to kind of say, oh, "Okay, this is not going to work for us because we could potentially do harm." So yeah, so that's it. This do no harm pledge, and and that seems like it's counterintuitive sometimes for nonprofits because they want to get the thing done. <laughs> Right, they don't want to like. Oh, this isn't
0: working, and I have to no. make this. Yeah, absolutely. And that is such a question. You know, how do you prioritize? And, and you know, I love what you're saying about smart nonprofits earlier, Alison and Beth. I know you're working towards that and getting smarter for nonprofits and, and philanthropies. I'm not sure um, how to sort of jump into the next area of AI and generosity. So, what advice would you give around? unlocking generosity with um, artificial intelligence.
2: That's where we began uh, this latest chapter in our work, was a couple of years ago, we were supported by the Gates Foundation to investigate the ways that AI could be used to unlock generosity. And we found this very quickly growing field of vendors who are using AI, as Beth mentioned, to help identify donors, both within uh, you know, prospective donors, within a database that an organization has, as well as out on the web to help craft messages to donors uh, and to answer rote questions. The key, Mia, isn't so much what the technology alone can do, but what can an organization, what we would call a smart nonprofit, do when it uses the, or- the technology well? And as Beth mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, when you can save what we think could be up to 30% of staff time uh, that is now being used in administrative rote tasks, it can create newly available free time that we call the dividend of time that we hope organizations will use uh, to build relationships with people, right? That we're coming out of an era of just frantic busyness. Part of it is because Organizations are so chronically under resourced. Part of it is a feeling that uh, we need to be going at a thousand miles an hour every minute of the day to look like we're being productive. Uh, And part of it is, I think, just a history of management watching staff, which forces people to look like they're (laughs) frantically busy. The result has been the creation of these transactional cultures within organizations, right? The job is to go really, really fast. You can only, then you don't have time to spend with donors, with volunteers, with your constituents, because you're going really fast, right? So I'm too busy. I'm too busy. (laughs) You can't do anything, right? So now imagine you have 30% of your time freed up. We don't want you to continue in that transactional way. We want you to be able to pivot and now say, gee, I have two hours a day to pick up the phone and call donors just to see how they are, to ask what our cause means to them. Why is this so important to them? To ask them if we make them feel valued and to uh, call volunteers, to share stories, to do all sorts of things with people. That's the ultimate benefit of using this technology, this automating technology, is to enhance our humanness together. That to us would be the ultimate successful outcome.
0: I love that. And Beth, I think earlier you mentioned in your book the ready set, smart tech and tools and piloting as three things. Now that we're talking about um, actual examples, is there anything you can think of what qualities good leaders possess and and you know that, that you can share with us that you've come across?
1: Uh, sure, I was thinking, Well, I'll sort of pick up on the theme of gener- AI and generosity um, that we were talking about and. Um, Allison pointed out the um, benefit of having that time to build relationships. Another benefit of some of the tools that we saw for fundraising and giving was the extreme customization or customization at scale in the way that you communicate online with donors. And also, one of the the quotes in the report was, you know, the end of uh, spray and pay is over. And imagine what would it be like if we had a 100% response rate from our you know, online uh, solicitations uh, to donors, and that's what these tools can do. That, that they can not send the same email out to a target group, but customize it to individuals. And that, and so you know, we don't we no longer have this like leaky bucket problem where we're constantly trying to go out and get new donors and, and let's find prospects, um, as opposed to kind of really gearing in on on that that group of people who can who will respond to us or are open for that. And we saw another group of tools, and this is less from the nonprofit um, side, but more from the philanthropy side, uh, the workplace giving tools that could highly customize what the employees experiences in giving to nonprofits and do a great job at matching them with a cause that they care about, but then also checking in and seeing how the relationship's going. One example that we had in the report was this kind of workplace giving app. You know, employee logs in and they answer a couple of questions. You know, they say they love dogs. And so they match them with a shelter, volunteer opportunity to walk the dog because it's their first you know, interaction and it's, they're not gonna like give money right away. Maybe they wanna just be engaged. So they find an opportunity that's either right near work or right near their home, since most of them are working at home. They go walk the dog at the shelter Then they receive a follow-up communication saying, you know, what was your experience like? And if it was good, they might give them, you know, a pitch to donate. Um, If it wasn't so good, they might send that information back to the nonprofit and uh, have nonprofit staff reach out to them. But these tools facilitate this kind of relationship building and customization at scale that ends up with the donor progressing on that, you know, donor journey and not dropping off. So I think that, to me, that's really exciting.
0: Beth, you kind of touched on leaky buckets and and what we need to be thinking about now. It's 2022, maybe over the next five years. What thoughts do you have around how generosity ideally should be in the world of smart nonprofits?
1: You know, this is a great question because we did write about it in our report AI forgiving, what did, you know, we had fun with this. This was uh, one of the, we always find those chapters a lot of fun to kind of imagine the future. So one idea, and again, you know, the future just doesn't happen. There are inklings of it along the way, there's signals. And and so one thing we talk about when we talk about the future is kind of some of the partnerships that are happening, uh, some right now between big tech and disaster giving. And one example that I thought was really interesting was from Google.org and Directly, where they were integrating lots of climate change data, local mapping data, and looking at areas that were vulnerable to hurricanes and tornadoes or wildfires, and using that to figure out, like, where are the vulnerable people who've been hit, who aren't getting the media attention, or who may be um, getting left out? You know, where are those areas that, you know, typically flood? You know, and then partnering with a platform like Give Directly that can get the money directly to those individuals. So I thought that was a pretty interesting example of where we might go in the future when um you know with these technologies. Another example we looked at was kind of having um a kind of Yelp for, if you would for causes where individuals are connected and they can see where others are giving. And this might overcome a barrier of not having a lot of the lack of data around like some of the end results and we're, and we're giving is directed, and again seeing where it's being left out as well.
0: And it's interesting the giving what came to mind is I had the opportunity to meet and interview President Anote Tong from um, the Republic of Kiribati and his entire he's a former president but his entire group of islands are being swallowed up by water and he he was actually looking for land and i'm what you know i'm wondering you know the, the examples that come to my mind around the climate change let's call it that or, or crisis i wonder if if money's gonna cut it you know what do we need to do to really truly help but that might be for another mm-hmm. conversation yeah. i i just um I love how you said the future signals you know what are we seeing now and and what can big tech really do to with data to you know we yeah. know we're aware i don't know if it's a bit existential yeah. of me i'm sorry I'm-
2: ai for good and data for good are fairly mature you know sectors where big tech and large ngos and uh, you know ai experts have been coming together to monitor climate change around the world, to monitor movements of refugees. Mm -hmm. So at a very large scale, you know, the best of tech and the best of the NGO sector have been working together to monitor and find solutions to very difficult problems over the last 10 years or so. What we're talking about in the smart nonprofit is how individual organizations can use AI for good.
0: And I love how you're thinking about things and scaling across, you know, the plethora of nonprofits and NGOs around the world. In terms of what you're just saying, Alison, any examples come to mind that you can think would be helpful, a journey that would help, you know, illustrate what a smart nonprofit looks like, maybe?
1: I have one just example and then. And then we can go back to the kind of broader concept. Um, I was thinking back to one of the examples we have in the book of a smart nonprofit that works on finding missing children, and 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 they collaborated with a big tech company to develop this algorithm that sweeps through all the missing children posters, and it also tries to anticipate what the kids would look like, you know, five years later, ten years later, as they aged, and and literally uh, the software is able to find a needle in a haystack. But their agency isn't the only agency working on this problem. So they created a cooperative of organizations working on the same problem that are then co-developing and also using this particular AI-infused platform. So we're seeing, I think, the potential is in organizations collaborating together with big tech that are collaborations around a particular problem.
0: And how's that going? Alison, do you think should organizations be working more closely together digitally to minimize risk? Are you finding that's happening? And can Mm. you tell us a little bit about
2: something? So, you know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about an embedded bias and our recommendation for organizations is to have outside ethics committees. Um, We just saw an issue this past week where crisis text line was criticized in the press. For turning their nonprofit data over to their for-profit subsidiary to use, and you know there were many ethics critics uh, of that. Mia, as you know, that would be perhaps a you know large burden for a smaller organization. But one could imagine that if you took all the food banks in a city and created an AI ethics committee to help you know that community of organizations figure out. When AI should be used, for instance, to screen clients and when it shouldn't, that would be a tremendous use of both the expertise of, say, academics and, uh, you know, people with commercial AI experience and this community of nonprofits that really ought to be working together to figure out uh, where and when uh, AI is a proper substitute for human decision-making.
0: And Beth, I think you just mentioned, and I should have—I like, loved what you said earlier about the example of the missing children, the needle in the haystack. Do do we need to be funding innovation and cooperation differently? What do you think? You know, we we should be paying attention to.
1: When I think about AI and AI for good, I'm thinking about the Google Innovation Impact Challenge. I know it happened. Uh, the winners were announced. It was right before the pandemic. It was the last in-person gathering that I got to go to where the, the winners of this, uh, challenge and they opened it up. You know, anybody could apply. It didn't matter if you had experience. It, it wasn't a specific area that they were trying to address. And, and they funded, I don't know, 10, 12 or 20. So projects out of the couple thousand that applied and they're across different areas. And what was interesting about it to me, was also the report that came out from it and where they were able to kind of have a taxonomy and uh, categorization of different types of data, collaborative data sets that were needed and where it made sense for different types of organizations to collaborate. So maybe like the next funding would maybe pick up on a few of those themes. I think there's lots of opportunities for funders, um, you know, maybe Mackenzie Scott's listening or (laughs) others to help move this forward, maybe funding convenings of organizations where they're talking to each other about their ideas, maybe collaborative readiness projects, if you will, you know, trading best practices, open sourcing their their data collection, uh, sharing about how they've tackled some of these ethical concerns. Um, that would be a fantastic convening, <laughs> a fantastic way to kind of spark it. Because I think rather than jumping right to like, you know, the doing, <laughs> There has to be the readiness,
0: piece first and the conversation and the thought about it. And any thoughts about getting readiness from you, Allison?
2: So to build on what Beth was just saying, the first step, Mia, is to stop. Just stop, right? So we're seeing organizations rushing into uh, using smart tech without um, really thinking it through. So we need everybody to back up a half step and really begin to think about What are the appropriate uses for automation within our organization? Where and how does it make sense for people on the outside, say, to be interacting with a bot as the first um, engagement with us? Or where on the inside does it make sense for bots to do the work that people have been doing now? And are we prepared to ask the right questions, ethically and managerially, about this transition and are we prepared to continue to reflect on how this is working once it's instituted, right? Once you start using a product, you're not done. You're just beginning. So uh we need organizations to really take a half step back, figure out which of their stakeholders. We hope many need to be involved in this process, how they can stay really human centered, meaning people always come first and live their values, and then how they can ensure that. Whatever they 've instituted is actually working well for people inside and outside of the organization
0: it's so important, and you know there's such a lack of things like trust and you know there's that balance of accountability, efficiency, and then trust and that humanity and the the, the relationship building you you've yeah. mentioned repeatedly and Beth, I love how you mentioned Mackenzie Scott maybe listening i 've got a question here. we are thrilled at how she's disrupting. Philanthropy with her giving. So, relative to advancing humanitarian applications of artificial intelligence, where in your view is bold funding most needed and where can it make the biggest impact?
1: Wow, what a question. (laughs) Like, let's open up and and where could we go? And, you know, if resources weren't an issue. And I think I would still answer (laughs) the same. Again, I think that there would have to be, I think there'd be investment in convening and matchmaking, you know, convening of big tech, of the organizations, um, and and really t- coming up where those collaborative use cases are, and then thinking about how those could be piloted, tested, and how the knowledge could be shared, not only within the group that's being convening, but broader onto the field, and then beginning to scale, scale
2: that wise. I don't know. Alison, do you have some thoughts? Always. I think that... The nonprofit sector has adopted the norms of data privacy from the for-profit sector. Just because, you know, we have the sense that whatever the for-profit sector is doing technologically is the right way to do this, which of course is nonsense. I would love to see funders come together, Mia, and fund the development of norms of privacy for data and ethics for the use of AI for the sector that sets the bar high, right? Because somebody is gonna have to start to make decisions about this before we slide into the lowest, you know, norms of ethical behavior on this. We already find ourselves ourselves in a place, Mia, where the Pentagon is experimenting with automated drones that can go into combat without any person saying go decided that that was a good idea? Who's going to make that decision that we're okay with that? For the nonprofit sector, who's going to decide that using biased AI to screen people for you know food services, housing services, whatever it is, is okay? It's not okay. And we need a sector-wide investment in developing really ambitious and high levels of ethical and privacy practices.
0: Yeah, it's like the brakes need to go on, what you said earlier, Alison, about stop, you know, let's just stop and not go over this cliff of of madness. You know, um, Beth, we're all kind of choking up on this um, idea of exploitation as well. My heart goes out to all the phenomenal work, non-profits really show up on the field every day. My hope, my hope, this, the key is relationships and being in touch with the tangibles and, and the humanity and the, the audience we have is really here. They show up, you know, to make sure that there is a humanity there. So yeah.
2: Yeah, we want to support them. Mia, look, your folks are doing the very hardest work there is in the world on the front lines, often unsupported uh, in their efforts. We want tech to be able to support them, and to make their lives easier, not harder. Uh, and that requires the kind of leadership. When Beth mentioned that the use of AI is not a technical challenge, it's a leadership challenge, right? And the folks on the front lines really deserve as much support as we can provide.
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear what your wish list is. You know, if you know, I think we're probably coming to a close, we're running out of time, but Beth and Allison. How can we help bring this together, you know, this beautiful matchmaking you've been talking about? What is your ask from our developer community and what could we be doing better in this sector?
1: Sure. I'll take a stab at this. And I'm going to, you know, I wrote a book called The Happy Healthy Nonprofit, Strategies for Impact Without Burnout. And I often get asked, what does workplace well-being have to do with digital transformation? And that's kind of where my wish is. And going back to the, the whole promise of smart tech that it's going to free, you know, take over those rote tasks, free up time, not for us to be even more busy, but really to, to give us that space. And maybe we can begin to tackle a problem that's right in front of us, which is the great resignation, people resigning from their jobs. It's hard to. Retain talent, recruit new people because of you know shortages, low pay. We're we're not treating them so great. We have toxic workplaces, and people are burning out. So so my hope would be to apply the technology to help prevent burnout, and maybe that that's something you know through adoption of some of these tools that can help with the workflow, but also actually to help measure <laughs> burnout. And, and understand when those potentials for areas of burnout happen, and not to just let it go, but to begin to think, you know, okay, so maybe we need to tell that person that they need to take their time off, or maybe we need to do a little intervention here, or we've achieved this, okay, maybe we can shift to a four-day work week, so that we really have a, a workplace that feels as good (laughs) as the social impact that we're doing outside our walls.
0: Absolutely. And Alison, how about your hopes and wishes and ask?
2: I will build on that. I work with a lot of religious congregations, Mia, and what's remarkable about them is the often misalignment between what they say their values are and the experiences of their congregants, right? So, the most common one is we say we're warm and welcoming and people, you know, often don't feel welcomed when they come in the door. That often happens because of that busyness culture that we talked about earlier, right? We're so frantically busy. We really don't have time for relationship building. So my greatest hope is that this smart tech will provide an opportunity for organizations to be able to have the time and the courage to ask of their constituents, how do we make you feel, right? How do we make you feel like you matter? Do we make you feel like you're uh, an important person uh, in our community? And to really take the time to hear people's stories and to respect those stories and to respond, to realign their values with their actual activities and, and results. That to me would be the greatest gift we could give in this sector.
0: Yeah. Now that's beautiful. We're really excited to hear you've got a book coming out very soon. Could you let us know when to expect it and everything that we need to know? That'd be great.
1: Sure. It's a smart nonprofit, staying human-centered in an automated world. It will publish on March 9th. That's our launch date. You can pre-order it on
0: Amazon. And we hope that you'll read it and let us know what you think. Congratulations. And before we close, I would like to ask you, Beth and Alison, if you can think of a futuristic AI application that you'd love to see exist and to describe it for us. Beth, sure. do you want to start?
1: So one of our colleagues, uh, Rotary Davis in the UK, coined this term called Philgorithm. so philanthropic algorithm. And I love the term. I'd like to imagine 50 years, 20 years, 10 years from now, that there would be filgarithms that would, that would redistribute wealth um, from the very wealthy to the people who need it directly so that we had a more just and equitable world.
2: How lovely is
1: that?
0: I love the term filgarithm, totally. <laughs> Thank you. Wow, <laughs> great one. Alison, how, how about you?
2: I would love for people to be able to have an AI-powered app they could use in their own lives to align every part of their life with their values and philanthropic goals. So when you go to the supermarket, are you buying things that really align with your values when you're making your charitable contributions, when you're volunteering? To bring all those pieces of our lives to a whole, because I really, truly believe, Mia, people are desperate for a sense of wholeness in their lives. And we are so atomized and so torn in so many different directions. If an AI app could bring us that sense of, you know, really living our values, I think that would be a tremendous source of comfort to people.
0: Totally. And, and great fulfillment. I mean, I love that too. Wow. What two brilliant, beautiful, futuristic AI applications. Thank you for for sharing those incredible ideas with us today. Beth and Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again for speaking with us today. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close.